Welcome to Dead House. I'm Dylan. I'm Nathan, and I was definitely definitely ready for that intro. <laughs> I wasn't looking at notes on my phone. Coming straight out the gate. We haven't uh, properly caught up for for two weeks. Yeah, had a had our last episode, which was a bit of a bit of a trivia, a bit of a whole shebang episode. So we yeah. took an, an extra week off just to not recuperate. It's not like we fucking did much. Just to but, uh, <laughs> just to do some editing. I yeah, think. yeah, just edit it and uh, just live our life. Yeah, we had. Uh, uh, we had a, a a a couple things that we did differently for our last one, so we uh, we played trivia, horror film trivia. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm, um, I'm sure most people who listen to this have hopefully gone back and listened to it and uh, seen the clips we've sort of uploaded here mm. and there. Yeah, we had a a few technical difficulties, uh, <laughs> which is why you cannot actually find the entire video anywhere. Yes, yeah, so who would have um, thought that a 4K video is like what was it, like 30, 40 gig or something? Oh, it was something like that. <laughs> a yeah. lot. Well, when you're shooting it on a phone for over an hour, it, uh, that was a, a small oversight by us. Learning curve, all a learning experience. That's right. At least, um, at least we got something out of it, and uh, we now know for next time. So, yeah, this one we're just back to the old two mics and the laptop, the huge. But uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, we had a lot of fun making that, and we look forward to doing some weird and wacky episodes in the future. Yeah, maybe making a little bit of bit of just regular video content. Yeah, from each pod, not this one, obviously. Keep a couple of the gags. So, anyway, what have you been up to in the I last couple of weeks? Have not been up to too much of note. I mean, obviously, I've done stuff, but mm-hmm. nobody cares about what it is on this podcast. Things and stuff. Yeah, the only thing I uh, I think is worth mentioning or horror related was I finally watched. Uh, Escape Room Tournament of Champions Escape Room 2 Yeah As thrilling as that sounds <laughs> Like it finally came out on Netflix uh, Yesterday So on Friday God yeah Not yesterday Yesterday was Saturday well, But on Friday Sunday. We watched it yesterday um, Yeah because we watched the first one of the movies mm. Obviously me and my partner both love like escape rooms And when there's a horror movie that's set around an escape room mm. You know you Sounds pretty fun. I like the Saw franchise That's really yeah. all fucking they are isn't it Yeah it was kind of like Saw with less torture and meaning i think <laughs> yeah it's as weird as it sounds like a pg saw yeah yeah despite it being still a bit you know ma but yeah we watched the sequel and i gotta say yeah i don't know was this that one that it's set in like new york or something it was set in like a giant building or giant structure under a building in new york where gotcha there's like a subway that derails it's it it's not as fun as the first movie like that's why i love the first one it's it's a fun movie it's not mm. necessarily that good yeah uh but this one is kind of less fun and from like the get-go you have to have a real like forgiving nature of science and how things work (laughs) to uh accept some of the stuff that goes on in the movie defies physics uh yeah just like oh that's not really how that works but i'll give it a pass for this movie well that's like some of the things like you just mentioned saw even some of the like elaborate traps later in the franchise are just <laughs> it's not logistically possible <laughs> but it's just it's good entertainment yeah for want of a better word it's good escapism pun intended that's good i also watched a film uh in the last two weeks um one that i've been meaning to get around for ages i watched last night in soho oh with uh, the, is that Anya taylor joy as well Anya taylor joy like yeah edgar wright edgar wright foray yeah. into like thriller horror yeah yeah written and directed by the man and i gotta say highly recommend it was very good it I, was. Um, I just realised. Sorry, I just said it's his the foray into horror. He did fucking Shaun of the Dead. I'm like, oh yeah, but idiot. I mean, it, it's got zombies and blood, but it's a comedy. Yeah, okay. So it's it's foray into straight horror without comedy. It's a zom rom com. 
Um, but yeah, no, last night in Soho, it was really good. It was a pretty original concept too. It's like this um, this chick that has like a fascination with sixties fashion. So um, she goes to London. Um, for a degree in fashion design and she ends up boarding with this older lady um, and the room she stays in upstairs gives her like visions of the past and uh, she ends up seeing this girl from the 60s and um, it just kind of spirals into a horror slash thriller from there so very nicely shot recommend and um, I was meant to go to a show I had a media pass to review We Came As Romans Mm -hmm. with Invent Animate um, supported by locals Hedrick, giving the Breezy Boys a shout out. Yep. Um, and I left at the normal time I would leave to go to a show, right? But turns out it was the same night as Riverfile. And <laughs> <laughs> for those listening who are not from Brisbane, that's like this big city celebration with fireworks and what have you. And pretty much all traffic comes to a standstill. And, yeah. Uh, Good luck getting in or out of Brisbane around yeah. that time. Yeah. So I was stuck in traffic for nearly two hours. Finally got to the venue, there were no parks, and after doing a couple of blocks, I had already missed two of the three bands, and Jesus. if I was meant to review it, I was like, you know, I can't just see the, the main act, so I just turned around <laughs> and went back home, but I mean, I had a, I was in a good position for the fireworks, like they were literally <laughs> happening above me while oh, I was nice. like stationary in, in gridlocked traffic, so that was cool, but missed out on, on the boys, but um Anyway, apart from a quick catch-up, I suppose we'll get into the episode. Yeah, what, what are we reviewing or talking about today? So today we are discussing the cult classic Hellraiser, mm-hmm, 1987. Mm-hmm. This is um, written and directed by Clive Barker, so the guy behind Candyman. Candyman. And uh, i got to say, this was one that um, a lot of people I know that are big horror fans say this is one of their favorite films, and I honestly had not gotten around to until this pod. Yeah, it's it's just it's one of those ones that has become so iconic and I've seen it parodied or referenced in so many mm. other media I've seen clips that similar to Candyman, it's like I almost didn't find it worth going back to watch because I've seen so much around it. Gotcha. And I felt like I was just gonna be let down by it. But going back and watching it finally for this pod, um, it's good. It's a good movie. I don't quite see it as anywhere near a favorite. Mm. It's definitely got some like issues. Yeah, not, not, not like bad issues, but like just things that hold it back from me really, really loving it. Yeah, but it, uh, I'd like, I like the world that it creates and yeah. the ideas that it, uh, it instills. Yeah, it's definitely a different tone of horror, which I think might have been what you said about Candyman when we mm. reviewed that as well, which makes sense coming from the same mind. But yeah, he's, um, he's definitely good at like creating a, a horror, if you want to call it a slasher, mm. without an actual. Slasher? Yeah, it's like a thinking person slasher. Mm. But it I, I have to agree in a way. It's um it's there's a lot uh a lot of love and, and hype around this film or this franchise I should say. Um and it it somewhat didn't live up to my expectations. I don't know if that's because oh, I've just no. heard too many people say how much they love it, but I enjoyed it. I just didn't think it was amazing. Yeah, okay. You hate it. Understandable. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. It was just um I, th- I think for me it was like the the premise was very simple and like while it had some ambiguous aspects, the narrative itself was a bit too minimal for my liking. But minimal how? Like I'll, I'll get to that. Okay, I'll get to that. Okay. A big but, spectacular practical effects and makeup. Uh for the most part, yeah, yeah. There are <laughs> there are definitely some. I think it's the very first time he gets like hooked. Mm. Like it looks cool and it looks very like practical and and like not 
like almost gross. Yeah. But it definitely doesn't look like skin. No, <laughs> like it's, it, it it's looks it looks stretchy. It looks like they've got some sort of dropped his mic. It looks like it's got some sort <laughs> I just of knocked over my mic and you've now got a cat on your lap. Bloody hell. All right. Back to it. <laughs> Continue, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. So like the skin doesn't look like skin. It looks I don't know really I don't know what it looks like. Not not fabric, but it's almost like gel or something like of that nature. Yeah, I got I got uh, that vibe as well. It was um like latex almost. That's not, the word not, I was not looking latex, for. but maybe like spandex. Spandex, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it had too much pull <laughs> <laughs> for for a man that was like fit. His skin was pulling too much. <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. Anyway, um, yeah. So another Clive Barker film starring uh, Sean Chapman, uh, and so who played Frank? But. I think the, the, Oliver, the human Frank. Yeah, yeah, Oliver Smith was was like undead Frank or, yeah. or monster re, re, Frank, real live Frank, skinless Frank. <laughs> yeah, skinless Frank. Skinless Let's Frank. call him Hot Dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh fuck. Um, <laughs> just pause while Nathan's broken. Oh, holy shit. Okay, um, sorry. Continue. <laughs> uh, Claire Higgins as was it Julia? Yep. Um, Andrew Robertson is Larry, the dad, uh, the the actual dad, and uh, Ashley Lawrence is the daughter. Uh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> I can't remember her name for the life of me. Um, what was the daughter's name? Daughter, Chris, Ashley Lawrence, Kirsty, Kirsty, Kirsty. Yeah. I was going to say Christy, but Kirsty, that's it. Um, Kirsty and Doug Bradley as old Pinhead. Yeah, <clears throat> who uh, I believe um, in an interview he said that he was actually a high school friend of Clive's. Oh yeah, and uh, he he had his introduction um, to acting in theatre, so yes. uh, he wasn't like super accustomed to performing in front of all these cameras and lights and and crew. But I did read in interviews with Doug as well that uh, b- because Pinhead um, and, and his like atmosphere that he creates is so reliant on his. Um, words and his makeup that they actually like Clive actually said that Doug Bradley was almost acting too much like to play too, too much of the theater was coming out yeah like, like the, too much movement and yeah, body language too much and, flair yeah and he was like it's definitely um, a more sort of arresting performance if <laughs> it's just a laugh. I still keep thinking of fucking hot dog <laughs> Sorry, continue, uh, continue. I've just derailed this episode of the first five minutes. Oh, oh shit, fuck. Okay, continue. Um, <laughs> and he was like saying, um, yeah, having like his arms behind his back or by his sides and just saying things like, we're going to tear your soul apart, like calmly with a deadpan face was more terrifying, which yeah. I agree. I, I agree because it's... It- Instead of being like malicious or vicious or anything else that rhymes with that, <laughs> then he's just authoritative. It's just a matter of fact with him. And I think I've said that yeah. before in an episode where like this the scariness of it, if that's a word, <clears throat> the mm. scary aspect of it is the lack of not lack of just like the matter of factness, like it is what it is. Mm. Time to die, we're gonna tear your soul apart. It's almost like apathetic or not not necessarily apathetic, but just clinical. Mm. Just, Absolutely. It's, it's business. Made on a budget of one million, so very very small. Yeah. Uh, but it made fourteen point five million at the box office. So pretty, uh, pretty successful. Yeah, not a great profit, but in comparison to what they had to to begin with, it um, definitely kickstarted that franchise. Which um, uh, 
went on to have was it nine sequels uh, and a remake yeah yeah because i think there's now 11 in total yeah oh yeah. do you call the 2022 on a remake or is it like a requel that that's a that's a hard thing to answer for me because i've only seen in the last two days the very first one and the 2022 one mm. and the vibe I got was that it's still set in the same world because yeah. it just has none of the same characters. It's almost like it's a later time, like, you know, mm. in the same universe. The box has just made its way somewhere else and mm. someone else has acquired it. It definitely which seems is, more which futuristic. Is, yeah, which is sort of like what the first one sets up at the end. Like, all this stuff's just happened and then the box just goes back to its original, I guess, seller to yeah. just pass on to start the story anew from someone else. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and I guess we'll we'll make it clear that we've only seen the 87 original and the 22 remake. We've not seen any of the sequels yep. in between. So, From what I've heard, it, it gets bad, like really bad. Yeah. It, it suffers from... Oh, Just I, the 80s slasher trend? Not even for, like further than that. Like I don't know how copyright law works at all, but it's something along the lines of the people who own the rights, like to keep the IP theirs they have to actually create content with it they can't just hold an ip and then do nothing with it oh uh, okay to i don't know use it or lose it yeah like use it or lose it and so to keep the ip they have to like churn out some sort of content with it so yeah, they just throw out a shit movie just to maintain the rights mm. and then it finally got lapsed and then that's where the new one came in yeah okay because the new one um <clears throat> we'll, we'll, i suppose we'll, we'll do a quick overview um, after we've gone into the OG one, so we can kind of compare them. But um, the new one was, um, oh, what's his name? David Bruckner, who yeah. did The Ritual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I uh, was intrigued um, before I even saw it in, in that regard. But um, back to the original, uh, it, was, it was shot in London, um, where Clive Baker, Clive Baker? <laughs> <laughs> Clive Barker was yep. uh, born and raised. Um, but it was English actors playing American characters and Sean Chapman's entire dialogue was dubbed by an American. Yeah, which makes sense of why it looks so stilted. Yeah. Like and, when, and Watching the movie, I kind of felt like he was very plain. Mm. And it, it makes sense. He might have had more like, yeah. char- like charisma, but they dubbed over it with just an American guy saying I, the lines. I agree. There was almost like no emotion in his lines. Yeah, he was very stiff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just think that's such a strange decision. I think I read that they did that, or the studio did that, because they wanted it to be more relatable to American audiences for reach. But, like, yeah. why? <laughs> why? I don't know. It in was a 80- good movie. You don't in in the 80s, I guess, there was less, like, intercontinental media that really yeah. broke through. Like yeah, you that's make true. You make stuff for the American audience, because that's where fucking Hollywood is. Mm. And I guess we haven't done many British horrors on this pod. Like, this is probably only the fourth or so one we've discussed. So, yeah, yeah it's cool to see that one of the one of the classics, um, you know, that's a lot of people's favourites, at least of the slasher genre, uh, came from that side of the world. Yeah. And this one is an interesting one. We mentioned before about, like, the change of tone to, to its peers, but it's kind of like a... It's like a sci-fi horror with, mm-hmm. like gothic elements in terms of the language and the costuming and and things yeah it's definitely got its own aesthetic to it yeah like it and that's that's one of the things i love so much about it Mm. is like it's not a typical slasher it's got so much like uniqueness and so many different characteristics that make it stand out from all the other shit that's out there yeah like you got these you know bdsm fucking yeah like 
interdimensional beings, which I got a question about them, which I want to ask you about later. Mm-hmm. Like they're not. No, I'll, we'll get into that later because I don't want to talk about that just yet. There's so much to talk about, uh, but it's all like speculation when it comes to like the whole theory behind the puzzle box and the Cenobites and their role in this universe because like so little is explained. Yeah. And yeah. I love that ambiguity. It's um, and, and like you said before about like their appearance, um, I believe the costuming of the Cenobites was inspired by, well, yeah, S&M clubs <laughs> uh, with all the leather and the chains and the yeah. straps and, and what have you. Uh, but also like a blend of punk fashion where, you know, you've got like the... The piercings, piercings and yep. and um, pale body, pale makeup, and, and mohawks and stuff, and Catholicism with like the tunics and things like that. So, oh yeah, really strange blend, but it definitely gives it this like unsettling kind of like chaotic look um, that doesn't really match their character, like their behavior. Yeah, it's really strange, but kind of like a car wreck. Like, it's fascinating. You can't turn away. Oh, yeah. You don't want to look because, you know, they've got like fucking... Oh, I want to look. They've got like... It's like cosmetic surgery done to their bodies because they kind of explain that the whole mission of the Cenobites, they call them, this like kind of sadomasochistic cult, I guess, um, is that they're like explorers beyond the limits of like physical pain and pleasure yeah like physical experience yeah and like, so they've they've like experienced so much pain and disfigurement i guess mm, would be a good word that their bodies are like yeah disfigured they, and they've got like shit like torn open they're flayed in certain parts yeah pins sticking sticks pins sticking out of their head yeah it's, it's almost like they're um mutilated because they like get off on the sensation because they're so past beyond like the human limits of what we can withstand that they're now like too far gone. It's like, Hmm. all right, well, this doesn't excite me anymore. Let's try cutting off my eyelids or slicing open my neck and splaying out the sides. Yeah, which reminds me, there was a, like an internet, uh, I guess like, I don't know, like an internet TV show. It was called Day 5 by like Rooster Teeth Productions. Oh, yeah. Um, There's something in that reminds me, that kind of reminds me of them because that the whole premise of that show is people just, start dying when they fall asleep like mm. randomly and so there's like a small i guess faction of people that realize oh to keep myself awake i've got to hurt myself because like uh. they, he like puts a nail i guess in his hand or it jolts him awake and keeps him awake yeah wow. and so they just start literally like yeah nails and hands and heads oh. and start disfiguring themselves to keep themselves awake wow okay see i kind of got reminded of a black mirror episode which i can't remember which one um but it's this guy that sort of it's like a scientist or a doctor of some sort that gets high off pain essentially hi um and in the end it they use it as like a parallel for drug addiction where he'll like design this contraption where he puts on his head to like electrocute himself and they find his like corpse with this contraption on it like fried but like um he like climaxed for death <laughs> and they yeah. find like semen Yep. on the body and it's like what the fuck well but, people do that in real life <laughs> well yeah i know like it's it's the whole like um pain and pleasure indivisible thing that they say it's kind of like this sex metaphor which i guess is also corroborated by the costuming and and obviously the like <laughs> violent pornography and like the polaroids and and everything that like frank was into before mm. he died or, or went missing or whatever happened to him it's kind of vague but i think that inferior gets like banished to hell 
where he's kind of like experimented on to see how much sensation he can withstand. Well, the way, yeah, so the way I saw it was he was a man who has experienced all sorts of pleasures and like he's he's one of those people that like gets into the autoerotic asphyxiation, if you will, mm. that he just wants to get to the absolute peak of human experience. Yeah. And so he finds this box, which I'm guessing he has heard like rumors about. Mm. That's the only thing I could figure. And like the whole, when he summons them, he's very like almost ritualistic, like... Mm. Um, Circle of candles. Yeah. And so he's... He's searching for like the next experience and they give it to him, mm. but it's just not what he expected. Because if you yeah. look at it, and I was thinking about this, like literally the difference between pain and pleasure is just the intensity. Like any yeah. pleasure can become pain if you have enough of it. Yeah, that's and true. So, and that's what, that's what makes me think like, what are the Cenobites? They're not inherently evil because they gave him exactly what he wanted. They, mm. He wanted to experience ultimate, I guess, pleasure and they gave that to him. It just yeah. turned into pain. Yeah, yeah, and the Cenobites, which you know, Pinhead is kind of like the leader of. Um, so, so have you, you got Pinhead, who everyone knows. He's got like the the pins white face, head. pins everywhere, um, in but, his, in his face. He's like the leader. Yep, you got Butterball. Um, <laughs> fucking Butterball. He's the only one I'm not a big fan of because he that, kind of stands out. <laughs> was that kind of like the? He's like the fat looking one fat with one sunglasses, with the, no eyes, or something. Yeah, like the eyelids are stitched shut, and yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think it speaks right because. Initially, it had lines in the script, but then with all that makeup and prosthetics, physically couldn't say it. Yeah. And then you got the woman who's got like her, I think they called her deep throat woman <laughs> on set because she's got like her, her oh, throat the, like opened up. Yeah. 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 That was gnarly. Um, oh, and Chatterer. Yeah. And Chatterer. That's one it. with like the lips removed and just constantly hear like the clacking of the teeth on yeah, each other. Yeah. Oh, that one. That one creeped me out the most. Um, but I was. Reading this interview with Doug Bradley, who played Pinhead, was saying his kind of interpretation of it was that they're kind of like prison guards. Yeah. Of like hell. This dimension in hell, yeah, where, where these people are condemned to experience this pain and pleasure um, for eternity, essentially. Uh, and he was sort of saying he sees like Pinhead as the warden, um, the other Cenobites as guards. And these, like, demons that you see throughout as, like, escaped inmates. Oh, yeah. And then the puzzle box, which we should probably go into and sort of, you know, discuss since it's such a big part of this franchise, is kind of, like, the key. Oh, so, yeah. if a human has that, they have the potential to evade the Cenobites. Yeah. Which no, that, I really like that because that kind of comes through in the way that each Cenobite kind of behaves. They each had their role in that group. Yeah. The puzzle box is this really interesting contraption where it's, like, this... Six-sided cube that... Is there can, a cube that's not six-sided? Well, I was going to say, because you can, like, press and turn different parts for, like, a Rubik's Cube, and then yeah, it can, like, yeah, elongate yeah. or change shapes. They kind of go into that more, I think, though, in the remake as opposed to this. Mm-hmm. I don't think you see it beyond a cube, at least in the first film. Um, and it's, like, really intricately designed. And he buys this box, which kind of reminded me of, like, Gremlins when <laughs> <laughs> buys the Mogwai from that old guy. Um and he kind of just like pushes down a, a bit in the middle and it kind of opens up and, and he just disappears and he vanishes. And that's where like the plot kind of begins um, in present day where it's got his brother Larry and his current wife Julia like moving into that house. Mm-hmm. I know, there's this like this underlying tension between Kirsty and Julia because it's not her mother. The mother's dead. Yeah. They, then- don't, they don't really get into that too much. It's just kind of like a daughter doesn't like step stepmother type yeah. scenario. Yeah, and then even like the tension between Julia and Larry because it's revealed that Julia 
had an affair with Frank when he yeah. was around. I mean, unbeknownst to Larry. Yeah. Yeah, so he's like... Because he, he's not a dislikable character. Like, he's he's friendly and supportive and he, yeah. he makes some lame jokes, but that's just a dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then Julie is quite cold and curt with him and um, then you find out why. Yeah. And then when she finds like... Because she finds the Polaroids, right, in the attic where yep. Frank disappeared. Yeah. And um, is it her and Frank? No, I don't think there's any of of um of her in it. She just kind of takes one with some random girl, tears the girl out. Just I guess so. She's got a picture of Frank. Yeah, and then you kind of get the the like dream sequence almost of you know a flashback of when yeah they be fucking um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I really like when they're kind of moving in and you've got the removalists like bringing in the bed and all this kind of shit and when. It like shows the nail that's sticking out, and his hand slowly getting closer and closer, and then Larry bloody cuts it open, and the blood slowly drips onto the floor. Yep. Um, does anything happen before that to kind of insinuate that Frank is kind of like in limbo, or is it just the blood on the floor that summons him? It's the blood on the floor that summons him, and I like that. Now that you mention it, I like that scene because, like, the, this whole movie is sort of getting into the fine line between pleasure and pain, mm. whatever that song's called, uh, <laughs> and like the way that the those like sequences are shot. It's very like it cuts directly from her remembering because she's standing in the room, her remembering her like having an affair and having sex with Frank, and then it cuts to the nail, cuts back to that scene, and then back to him like cutting his hand. Mm. And so even that's like you got on one hand someone experiencing pleasure, on the other hand someone ex- experiencing pain, mm. and then they like, just kind of like culminate and mesh together. That's interesting you make that point because that also happens again when um, Frank kind of like is resurrected from this, like, puddle on the floor. Like, I really like you get, like, the fog coming up, the nails, like, yep. popping out of the floorboards and kind of, like, this, like, viscous fluid just, like, seeps out of the cracks yeah, and that, he just kind of... And that's my favourite, like, sequence of practical effects yeah. in the movie because that looks fucking good where it's he's, like, like, reforming into a... Yeah. First, it's just a glob and then like, he gets sort of these little stems, hands, yeah, and it's all it's liquidy gnarly. and gooey and it's great. <laughs> it reminded me of um, the final phase of Seth Brundle in The Fly, <laughs> Cronenberg's yeah, version. It's just in reverse. Yeah, where he kind of looks like prawn-esque, like <laughs> District 9 looking thing when he's melted. Um, and I think at one point they show like the brain forming as well yeah. and the skull like slowly coming around it. Um, but anyway, when it forms enough... Of Frank to be like a recognizable body, he screams, and then it cuts to them laughing at the dinner table oh, yeah. downstairs. And I was like, "Oh, that's another cool cut where it's kind of the the pain and the pleasure in mm-hmm. one." Yep, yep. Which is really nice. And I also like that they kind of um, show Larry being squeamish, and when he cuts his hand, it starts bleeding. <laughs> he's like, "Oh, I think I'm gonna faint." Yeah. And then the rest of the film is just so gory. Yeah, it's just, that was a nice touch to show that like he and his brother were not really anything alike. Yeah, and maybe that's say. why Julia went for Frank. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of vague on like how it began because there's the flashback where they first meet, and he like is it just in the pouring rain? And I think she says like, "Oh yeah," he's like, "Oh, I'm Frank." The he, like rocks up at the house. Yeah, it's like from the get go, it's just kind of a weird interaction. But then apparently that's all it takes, and she just had eyes for him. Yeah, I didn't really know what to make of that. Was it like the previous house that Larry and Julia lived at, and Frank just rocked up one night in the rain and wanted to come in, and that's how they met? Yeah, there was also a weird sequence of like that whole flashback, where it then cuts to another bit where they're like Julia and Frank are talking, mm. and uh, I wasn't sure if it was immediately after or like months later, because then she says like, 
or he says it's the wedding day. So I don't know if that's when um, Julie and Larry are going to get married. And like, mm. I don't know. It was very vague on the timeline of that. So I don't know if like Julia and Frank met and then immediately started fucking or if they met and then later they just started having a thing. Mm, I'd like to think it was the latter. And so there was just this like sexual tension between them and they knew it was like forbidden because they had already tied the knot. Um, Larry and Julia, that is. I do like then when Frank has kind of like reformed now and he almost appears like inside out. Mm-hmm. Like you can see the, the nerves and exposed bones and muscles. and Yeah, well, I don't think it's inside out. I think it's more just like he's only reformed to like a certain layer and so yeah. he doesn't have any external skin or muscle layer yet. Yeah, because they kind of uh, infer that each blood sacrifice made in that room will kind of lead him a little closer to being fully reformed and, and at least appearing human. Yeah. Um, and then pretty much the entire film just becomes Julia like luring men home <laughs> to kill them um, so Frank can essentially absorb their blood and, and get a step closer to, to being who he was. Yeah, and that that's what sort of what I was talking about before where this movie isn't what I was expecting it to be. Mm. Like I... Before I had seen all the clips I'd seen before I watched the movie, yeah. I knew about the Cenobites. That's kind of it. I knew about like the general tone of the you know, BDSM pleasure pain stuff. Yeah. But then they're kind of barely in the movie. Like they're the catalyst that gets the movie going and they're in the background. Mm. But they're not necessarily the protagonist. Like the villains are Frank and Julie. And yeah, so exactly. the movie pivots to them trying to reclaim his like re- reform his body mm. by killing these random men. Yeah, I think the, that's interesting. Yeah, the, I agree. They're kind of like adjudicators and the real monsters are Frank and Julia yeah. who are just like killing innocent people and, you know, neglecting her family just to like <laughs> resurrect this guy from hell who she cheated on her husband with. So yeah. they're and, horrible people. Yeah, and that's, so that's why I think there's another way to interpret the Cenobites of where you said before and I guess the way Doug Bradley saw it was they were the wardens of hell and like mm. they're... Kind that kind of in, infers that they are malicious in in um, like their motives by nature. Yeah. By nature, but I guess the other way I interpreted it was that they are just like they said explorers mm. from another realm or whatever. They're just these beings that come when they're summoned from the box, yeah, and they give exactly what they think that the people want, and then they leave. Like they're not malicious; mm. they're just doing what they came to do. Yeah, they're just there to kind of ensure balance. Yeah, and. Um, uh, I think my favorite kill, though, was probably the first one when she lures the guy back and just, like, smashes his teeth out with a hammer. <laughs> and they, like, show the dude's jaw with, like, part of his lip removed and, like, a couple of teeth missing. Like, that was pretty gnarly because the rest are just kind of, like, get clocked from behind or it's just, like, a quick glimpse because it's, like, almost like a montage at that point. Of yeah. The, the many men that get killed in order to, to resurrect Frank. But it's almost like these Event Horizon-esque visuals of hell yeah or, or de- at least um of frank as well mm, yeah i definitely got that feel well even though i mean event horizon came later obviously so maybe it drew some inspiration from oh Hellraiser. true yeah and so yeah i guess anything to do with like a hell type dimension mm. and yeah because even event horizon it's not bdsm but it's it's also like a lot of torturous like um, experiences yeah like, i think even is it sam neil sam neil's yeah. character in that is like no, you're going to love it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, and you got the big orgy scene, I guess, as well. But, yep. um, like, traditionally, you think hell and you picture, like, lakes of fire and things like that, like brimstone, mm-hmm. whereas this was, like, 
dark and cold and um, like chains and uh, almost like these um, these rotating uh, towers with like hunks of meat on hooks like yeah. reminded me of like fucking kebab shops <laughs> <laughs> just a donner just like an elephant's leg spinning around <laughs> they shave meat off um, but I also love that I, it might even be the opening scene before like it gets into the whole puzzle box thing or um, introducing the main characters and it's got like Pinhead piecing together like remnants of Frank's face yeah oh like that <laughs> that was just gnarly um, and even then like Gore later in the film when the like chains shoot out from nowhere and, and hooks dig into people's skin and uh, there's like one moment in there that I think was removed from censored versions overseas of like rats squirming while they're nailed to a wall. Yeah. Things like that. Like it's pretty gnarly visuals. And um, I think I better shout out the makeup artist. I want to say, was it Bob Keen? It was Bob Keen. Yeah. Cause I think we might've mentioned him in Candyman. I think he did both. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess he just works with Clive Barker. Yeah. And I guess Candyman was a bit more restrained. Like there was the, the gore of his hand and then when he like parts his coat and his like ribs are exposed and everything. But mm-hmm. yeah, this was um this was pretty next level. <laughs> uh and even like the end when Frank has kind of like gotten the skin of Larry and like <laughs> worn it and Larry's skinless body is upstairs and Larry uh sorry, Frank gets like pulled apart by the face mm. of, of, of these hooks and he's like stretched out like a fucking right. leather face mask or something. I just thought like a like an alpha male orangutan. <laughs> yeah, and then they show this like... It's kind of clunky the way it's edited, but like Kirstie's in there, turns away, and then it shows him just getting like ripped apart in, in like a split second. Yep. But I love that his last line as he's smiling is Jesus wept mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. he dies. I think the script originally just had him saying, fuck you. Yeah. But that's just so bland. Yeah. Jesus wept is so much cooler. <laughs> yeah. I Like it seems like what, I don't know what it means. I assume it's like biblical. Like, oh, Je- yeah. Like Jesus just, wept. Just the mocking of Christ, I think. Of Christ. But yeah, I guess, I guess it does sound cool. Yeah. When you get down to it, like Catholicism... No, we're not religious people, but Catholicism can be pretty badass in its like medieval ways almost. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I'm not religious and I don't care about any of that shit. No offense to any religious people. But <laughs> I, I've always liked um I don't know, bits of media or stuff that takes things or ideas or just imagery mainly mm. from Catholicism or religion and twists it and just like takes it to the extreme, like all the Book of Revelation stuff. There's the season of Dexter where there's a whole killer that's basing his mm. um, his kills on like the Book of Revelations. Yeah. Bit of a weak season, but I like the imagery in it. Fucking The Binding of Isaac is a nice <laughs> is a, is a game like an yeah. indie game. That, Sean will like that reference. Yeah, that uh, takes a lot of religious things and twists them. I mean, look at the film Seven. Yeah, exactly. That's a, it's Seven. another example where they're yeah. just taking something that's um, biblical and you know good natured and then just <laughs> making it sadistic and yeah. horrifying. Um, I guess on a religious note, there's also some kind of symbolism there when the daughter Kirsty's like running away after she's got like blood on her shirt with the box in her hands and she kind of like pushes her way between these two nuns <laughs> and they just like turn back and look at her. I wondered what that scene or that shot was for because it doesn't really correlate to anything before or after, but I think it was just to show like a, a disregard for religion, organized religion. <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely like religious imagery because there's also a way she's trying to hide from uh, Frank and Larry's skin. Mm. And she like opens a cupboard and like a statue of Jesus falls out, I think. 
Oh, I want to say the mouth opens and there's like maggots that fall out. No, that's just a dead guy. But, oh, <laughs> but there's oh. like a statue of Jesus that that she like sees when he's like impaled by chains and hooks and stuff. Is he in like a T pose crucifixion? Or yeah, that, yeah. So there might be something of that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's kind of inferred later on that she hated Frank when he was alive because he like molested her when she was a child. Mm, that's a bit. That's a bit real. That's a bit hateful. I know. Because, like, I, it made me uncomfortable. Because <laughs> whenever they have dialogue, oh, yeah, he, like, refers yeah. to himself as daddy and says, like, oh, when you were younger, you were so pretty. Yeah. Things like that. And he's always trying to, like, grope her. And, oh, it's just gross. Frank's a freak. Yeah. Freaky Frank. Skinless Frank. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Enough. Um, and I also like that that whole hospital sequence is probably my favorite in the entire film. Um, like, you've got the moment when the IV bag is, like, slowly filling with blood. Yeah. Which kind of reminded me, I think that happens in Talk To Me. There's a scene where, like, when the kid's in the hospital oh, bed yeah, I think and so, the yeah. IV bag fills with blood. I was like, oh, I wonder if that might have been where they got oh, that from. Surely not. Um, and then that door to hell just kind of, like, opens when the walls separate. Uh, the, the creature I think they refer to as the engineer okay. in, the, in the script um, was, like, that sort of like floating scorpion looking thing that kind of looked like the fucking deformed child from a razor head. Um, Cause it's like working on like levers and, and buttons and things. And then it sees her and starts coming towards her and you can see the fucking dolly and like the guys yeah. pushing it that I saw that and I was like, Oh really? Come yeah, on. That, that's what I'm talking about when I, when I start saying some of the effects in this movie are bad. Like you go mm. from, from the awesome reforming Frank scene yeah, yeah. to then this, like there was definitely a budget, for special effects and mm. it was all used in that first one and then they had none left for any of the other effects yeah see if i was the director or the editor i would have almost i probably would have cut that out because like, <laughs> as cool as it is that concept that there's like someone in hell that's essentially working to keep the lights on yeah like i like that idea and the the look of the creature was really sick but as soon as like you see something like that that removes you from that situation like i wouldn't have kept it in so <laughs> I'm surprised that's been like forgiven all these years, the, yeah. g- given the status. Well, of it's this also film. the kind of the only moment in the movie where it does get into that like doorways opening mm. and like walls parting and stuff coming. Because I think I think that's the only time in the movie you see it. Yes, I think so. It's it's yeah, it's very like surrealist mm. in that moment. Um, and then you get the the awesome pinhead monologue. Uh, you know the no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. <sighs> Um, which I, I want to shout out. <laughs> Do it. Um, <laughs> my friend's band, uh, Product and Neglect, uses that sample in a song, Perpetual Night, um, which you can find on all streaming services, and you should. Yeah, honestly, I don't know. that. that if you're like your fucking slam deathcore, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, that that type of song is you it's harsher than my usual listening mm. but i that was one of my top 10 i think played songs last year yeah i was so, impressed i told him and he was stoked because yeah. they had like 30 listeners at yeah, the time i was i was definitely one of them <laughs> that was sick um but yeah a- a- anytime pinhead speaks it's it's one of those he's one of those characters where you listen because it's very slow and calm and decided. so authoritative yeah like Candyman. like Candyman's yeah. very restrictive um, select character in, in his movements in his in his um, speech and I really liked yeah wh- whenever Pinhead speaks it's it's something like grave and just almost like darkly poetic mm. which is makes it really cool for sampling in metal songs <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um, also when uh, we get the final act and 
you know, it turns out that Frank was kind of just using Julia to be summoned so he could be of flesh and blood again. And he just kind of like uses her for that. And yep. then she falls madly in love with him again. Um, disregards how fucked up he looks and what his intentions are. And he kills her to get to Kirsty. Yep. Because it's kind of revealed in their interaction that she's the one he really wants. And he kind of like drains her of blood like the other guys where he just kind of digs his fingers in her neck. Yeah. And kind of like absorbs it. And then it shows from another angle her like like shriveled corpse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that. That was cool. I You you said some stuff there that I don't exactly agree with. Okay. I, I don't think... That he's initially not initially like he's like completely after Kirsty because he's the one she's always he she's the one he's always wanted. I think she's just there in the moment. And he wants, I don't know. He's finally reformed. He just wants that. It's not like his ultimate goal or anything. God, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Like, okay, I, I can know. see that. Sure, he's definitely like a lack of empathy man. Like mm. it's definitely evident that he never actually cared for Julie. Oh yeah, which, well, wh- which kind of almost makes it tragic. That, like, Julie's gone through all this, like, yeah. shit to help him. Just hopelessly in love with him to be yeah, discarded. I think, I think when they were pitching ideas for the name, one of the, like, a 60-year-old woman who worked in, like, I don't know, the writer's room or worked in the movie suggested uh, what a woman would do for a good fuck. <laughs> <laughs> which That's like a working title for the film. Yeah. That's great. Uh, which, uh, honestly, is a very apt description of the movie. I mean, she's not wrong. <laughs> she's not wrong. And that six-year-old woman kicked the table. That's fine. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's like something Betty White would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then in the end, Kirsty defeats the Cenobites with the the puzzle box, and this is kind of strange too, because like when we were talking about it before, the Cenobites kind of uh, are summoned by the puzzle box when someone activates it, and then they are brought forth. Um, they give the person who's who's summoned them whatever they want. And then they kind of disappear again until it, it gets, you know, passed on to the next person and discovered and, and opened. But Kirsty kind of, she, she grabs the puzzle box. She, like, presses the button in or whatever. You've got these shitty <laughs> electricity oh, effects. That's got to be the worst part. <laughs> Apparently, Clive Barker and someone else just did that themselves because they're at the, the barrel, <laughs> the uh, end, scraping end the, the barrel budget. for their budget by that point. Um, and then they just kind of, like, disappear and the house collapses. Yeah, it's definitely the weakest part of the movie, I think. Yeah, it wraps up too conveniently for my yeah. liking. Yeah, I I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that. And that that's what I was saying before with that's one of the aspects that stops it from being like one of my favorite movies mm. is like the ending just doesn't really pay off that well. Yeah. I I mean, it's just that part because I mean, what comes after that I like because the house it's kind of got like this carry ending where the house kind of collapses and burns to the ground and there's nothing left it's just um kirsty and the other guy well i can't remember her love interest name oh, he's not important um, enough appears. to remember his name <laughs> and um then this homeless guy appears who you see for a moment earlier in the film in, in like a pet store she works yeah at. so that that's that's an aspect of the movie that is it seems kind of very out of place and yeah i, I read that that wasn't originally in the novella so Got it, it okay. feels out of place because it was something that Clive Barker added into the movie for some sure. reason. Yeah, and so yeah. it's just like this homeless vagrant that mm. she sees once when she's out making out with her boyfriend, I think, or on the way to make out with her boyfriend. I thought the first time she saw him was in the pet store. Nah, she sees him one time before then. Oh, okay. I might Just, just before they start making out. Got you. And then she sees him in the pet store where he just walks in, starts like eating <laughs> crickets or bugs or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, finally you find at the end it's secretly a, flying demon in a disguise that wants the box yeah i 
That's what I mean, like, at the start where I was saying that the demons they see are kind of like escaped inmates. So maybe he wants it as, like, a key so the Cenobites can never catch up to him. But I, 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 I will know. say, like, as, as out of place and jarring as that is, I do like that he kind of transforms into almost this, like, Josie Devil-looking skeleton. Yeah. Like, this this horse-looking skeleton <laughs> with, like, leathery wings just, like, grabs the puzzle box and flies off. And then the last scene is the same as the first. Yeah. It's it just does like that old chestnut. Is, is it identical or is it just similar situation and different character? Well, or is different, it Frankie? It, no, it's not Frankie. It's a different character. Got like yeah. a different person buying it. Got and so, yeah. so maybe that's trying to say that the the demon homeless guy mm-hmm. is the person who is selling the cube to people. Like he sells the cube, ah, sort of follows it, disguises yeah. himself as a fucking homeless vagrant. And then waits until the end to then get the cube back to then fuck off and sell it to someone else. He's just he's kind I of like the, the perpetuator that puts it all in motion. I I like that idea. My only question then would be, like, what would be the purpose of the Cenobites? Because that that almost makes them not in control. Because like, if all they do is kind of give people that unlock the puzzle box what they want, then if this homeless guy is kind of giving it to randoms who are willing to pay the price or essentially sell their soul for it, the Cenobites are summoned and it's like, okay, what do you want? Then they do it. And they kill anyone who tries to intervene. So, like, it's almost like they're powerless and the person who has the puzzle box is in control. Sure. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. I don't know. I just find that strange. I like that. There's there's so many levels to this. It gets very convoluted and I'm sure they explore it in the sequels. Well, that, that's what's be so beautiful about an ambiguous movie. If, if, yeah. if you don't explain everything, then it can just leave so much open for other people to interpret and make their own fucking shit up. Yeah, yeah. See, this is what I meant at the start when I said it's kind of like a minimal narrative. To me, that just made the film a bit, like, slow. Okay. But, you know, Candyman was a slowish kind of movie and I still enjoyed that. So, like, million dollar budget. You can't do much with it. I mean, just look at the puzzle box effects, for example. Yeah. Um, but I did read that there, a lot of the shots were done just with a single camera for all the indoor scenes uh, because that's all they could afford. So as a result, they kind of incorporated lots of um, tilts and static shots as opposed to panning because if it was just this one small room and you've got the crew and other actors all in there, you can't just, you know... Very limited uh, space. Yeah, you can't have all this camera movement. But as a result, that kind of gave them the power to have kind of like low angles whenever a Cenobite was in frame to show they have power and um, looking down on, on the humans um, and, and the, the main characters there. Uh, and also made it more claustrophobic because much of this film takes place just in an attic. This yeah. kind of like dilapidated house that they're moving into and building up. And really the only times that you see outside of this room is when... Um, Kirsty is in the hospital and even then she's almost there against her will. So it's the same sense of being trapped. Yeah. Even though it's outside the room, which I thought was really cool. Indeed, indeed. I got to say, my favorite shot though um, would be that dream sequence when Kirsty like walks into that room and there's like floating feathers. At first I thought it was snow, but it's like feathers oh, around Oh, yeah. With the two candles and then there's like this white sheet over a corpse of some kind that's slowly bleeding through the fabric as a baby cries. Yeah, I don't like, I don't know why the baby was crying because then yeah. it turns out to be like Larry, right? I think so, Cause yeah. Because that, that's when she wakes up, freaks out and then calls her dad. Yeah, because it was, it was like a premonition. But 
with like the baby crying and the feathers and everything, it was done like a nightmare. But it was just like the composition was so <laughs> nice when you've got like the two candles either side and like the camera like looking over her head. Um, yeah, that was that was sick. Caught me off guard. Would that be your your painting? My painting, the, <laughs> the painting that I'd hang in the the gallery of the dead house. Yep. No, my you hit the nail before with it with the the shot that shows original Frank's face in pieces just on the ground. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. just something beautiful about that. Like, it's, it's almost Picasso-esque. Like, <laughs> a sick you, mosaic. Yeah, you just look down and there's, there's a human face there, but it's in pieces. Yeah, yeah. It looks, looks that, nice. That was gnarly. Um, I think I read too that the actor that played maybe Butterball yep. um, originally assembled those pieces and then they reshot it with Doug Bradley's hand as Pinhead, but... He didn't know that for years. So for yeah. ages, he was like telling people, oh yeah, that opening scene where the hand puts the piece together, that's my hand. But it wasn't. <laughs> yep. Uh, um, so briefly, do you want to touch on the, the what you thought of the remake? Then? Yeah. Re- the 2022 movie. Yeah. So I had wanted to watch that for ages. Like I think like back when we lived together, we were going to watch yeah. it. We just never got around to it. Yeah. Um, well, because I wanted to watch the original Hellraiser first. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to compare them. It, it was cool because it's like we said it's a requel in the sense that it was like the same context you've got the box you've got the Cenobites um, all the kind of lore of Hellraiser like the um, oh, what do they call them um, like followers of the Gash or something and like the, their Lord Leviathan like things like that are kind of alluded to mm-hmm. um, but the main character very dislikable yeah. I could not stand her She's, yeah. I feel like 50% of her dialogue were the words, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I get she was kind of playing this kind of like helpless addict that kind of gave me 2013 Evil Dead vibes. I thought the exact same thing, except I liked yeah. Jane Levy, who's the chick who plays her in yeah. Evil Dead. She did a much better job at it and she oh, was yeah. still a likable character. Yeah, exactly. She's like trying to redeem herself, where in this she's like straight up refusing, like <laughs> doesn't want to acknowledge the problem. Well, that's um, an addict, right? Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, she ju- does try to bring like her brother back. Um, and then just doesn't. Yeah, but then he just kind of like disappears into obscurity. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I did like it was Justin from 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. Uh, but it's like all CGI. There's no practical effects to well, my knowledge. The the start of it, the box is practical or definitely looks like it oh the, the box was yeah, yeah. like the box does have some cgi later when it has to contort into shapes that the yeah. real box couldn't yeah in terms of makeup though like the the cenobites themselves all looked like it was just yeah the cenobites CGI. looked much worse than in the original yeah which the makeup of the original one was what i loved most about it mm-hmm. so that kind of detracted a lot for me but um yeah i mean the story was was cool in the sense that they explored it a bit more like you're saying about the configurations um, in the first one, it's like you find the puzzle box, you activate it, Cenobites appear, you make your choice, um, then, you know, wash, rinse, repeat to the next person. Well, in, in, this, the, in, the, in the first one, you don't even like make a choice, really. Like, oh, it's, true. it's not explicitly stated true. that they ask you what you want. Mm, mm. They just assume that you've opened it because you you want yeah. extreme <laughs> pain slash pleasure. Yeah. Whereas in this one, it's like there's there's six different configurations and then when you get to the final one, you can make the choice of six different outcomes for like the rest of your life. Sure. And yeah, I just thought that was kind of cool where there was like, you know, um, what was it like? You could resurrect someone from the dead. You yeah. could choose uh, like power. 
Not Quill Lickers' lament, which is life, and that's one she ends up accidentally choosing, which is just you live your life. Live with the guilt. Yeah, live with the guilt. They fuck off. There's Lazarus, which is to resurrect someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's power, which the like the antagonist ends up picking, which mm. apparently turns you into a Cenobite. Yeah. Uh, there's s- not sublime. Liminal, Liminal, which I think is the pleasure thing, yeah. which, which is what he chose the first time, which is then what pretty much just creates, I guess, the regular Cenobite stuff. Yeah. Why they just kind of torture you because they attach... And I like the device that's in his chest where it like, it's very saw trap esque. Oh, yeah. it, it like reefs his nerves, like his nerves to a certain point and then puts it back so that he can never fully get to the point of being numb to the pain. Mm. It like wrote, it, yeah, it was like a, this rotating device through his chest that mm. was like threaded with nerve endings. Yeah. Uh, there was knowledge was another one and yeah. they don't get into what that entails. Mm. But yeah. And yeah, yeah I, I like that aspect of it where they're, sort of expanding the lore of the yeah. cube, kind of almost breaking the rules of what was set up in the first one, but yeah. hey, whatever. Uh, yeah, and then you get into that whole ending stuff where the giant Leviathan monolith comes down in the sky is a bit mm. much for me. I did not like the ending. Yeah. But I think I like that ambiguous nature of the role of the Cenobites in Hellraiser. Whereas this, it's kind of like spoon-fed to the audience. It's like, this is our mission. This is what we do. This is our background. Yeah. Like, it's it's less mysterious. Yeah, absolutely. But I do like the, the puzzle in this one. Each time it changes shape, a spike, like, shoots out of it. So it draws blood of the person who formed it. And each blood sacrifice into the box takes mm. it to the next stage as opposed to in the first one it was just blood that gets like spilt on the ground of the attic yeah so that was a, a nice kind of touch but yeah um it was it was more convoluted <laughs> than it needed to be which i think was to its own detriment um but i mean the the puzzle box concept is just really cool and interesting mm. and um the Cenobites is just quite original i find so um yeah, yeah, that was that was yeah. my thoughts. But yeah. I'd, um, say, I'd say they're some of the most iconic horror icons, mm. despite being barely in the movie. Yeah, similar, similar to Candyman, really. Will uh, you be uh, checking out any of the sequels? You reckon now? I don't know. There's so many. Maybe I'll watch like the second, maybe the third one, mm. but I probably won't delve any further than that. Yeah, I think two and three are the only like respectable ones from what I've read. Yeah, maybe one day I'll just hate myself and <laughs> want to actually like 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 in the movie I want to experience both pleasure and pain to its yeah. fullest extent. Ooh, Jesus. Well, I think that might be all we have to say about this movie. Yeah, I think that is. Yeah, so I hope you enjoyed our little talkings about Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2022. Yes. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, you can catch us on any social medias. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deadhouse, Deadhouse Pod. Mm-hmm. You can. Email us at deadhousepod at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. Starting up a little bit of video content on there. I think our TikTok profile is deadhousepod, same as Instagram. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Follow us to uh, to see more. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, catch us every Friday at 5 p.m. We'll be right back.